Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how it all affects our nation's future. This week, we'll begin with an update on the latest inflation and economic growth numbers, Our guest is Douglas Holtz-Eakin, president of the American Action Forum and former director of the Congressional Budget Office. And then later, we'll get Doug's view on immigration reform. He just released a a new issue brief on the subject. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and Chief Economist Steve Robinson, of course, are joining the conversation. So uh, let's get started. You know, a little background on, on Doug. Prior to his service as uh, CBO director, he uh, was chief economist at President uh, George W. Bush's Council of Economic Advisors. And uh, he also worked as director of domestic and economic policy for the John McCain presidential campaign. Today, he writes a daily column in the American Action Forum's morning newsletter called The Daily Dish. And he regularly comments on current policy and political d- debates in a variety of news outlets. And today we are happy to say that includes Facing the Future. So Doug, Tori, and Steve, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks, Bob. You know, Doug, the economy has had a lot of competition for headlines recently, (laughs) uh, uh, but it's uh, very much on the minds of most Americans. And uh, last week we got a couple of reports that I want to talk about. One was the October report from the uh, Bureau of Economic Analysis on the Personal Consumption Expenditures Price Index. That's that's a mouthful, but uh, it's important because it's the Fed's preferred measure of inflation. And in October, the PCE price index uh, showed a pretty pretty positive trend, and it was kind of flat. Actually, uh, it showed inflation coming down. So Tell us about it and, uh, you know, why it's what 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 is the most significant salient parts? Because a lot of people are saying, hey, look, this looks like, um, you know, maybe the Fed has engineered a soft landing. What's your take? So uh, first for the listeners, um, uh, do not try to remember any of these terms. PCE price index, uh, <laughs> PCE price index, market based core PCE price index. Uh, <laughs> this usually you hear about the consumer price index. That's people's measures of inflation. That's the cost of a fixed basket of goods. You go out every month and you buy the same stuff and you see how much uh, the cost of buying it goes up. But that's not how people behave. When people go to buy eggs and eggs are suddenly 98 bucks a dozen, they buy fewer eggs. They do something else. And the reason the Fed likes this PCE price index is it reflects actual purchases in the economy. And so as people move away from high price stuff toward lower price stuff, you generally get less inflation out of the PCE price index. And we do. Like uh, CPI uh, inflation peaked at 9.1% year over year. Uh, PCE, the one we're going to talk about, peaked at 7.1%. So if if you're in the Fed world, you're looking at this index, it gets up to 7.1%. Your hair is on fire. You want to get it back to 2%. That's the goal. And what we found out in the most recent report is 
measured year over year, PCE inflation is now 3%. That's a seemingly an enormous amount of progress, 7.1 down to 3. If you dig inside of it a little bit, you, you get a slightly more nuanced view. People like to look at, quote, core inflation, which gets rid of food and energy prices, not because it's a better measure of inflation. In fact, you have to pay for food and you have to pay for energy. So having those prices matters, but it's a better predictor of where the overall index is going to end up two, three, four years from now. So if you look at the core, it came in at 3.5%, um, down from 3.7 the month before, and the core peaked at 5.6. So that kind of progress, 5.6 down to 3.5, isn't quite as dramatic as looking at all these top lines because the top lines are heavily influenced by energy prices. Energy prices last month fell at an annualized rate of 27%. That's not going to continue. And that's why the, the the top line got pulled down so much. Staring at the core gives you a much better feel for the underlying trends in inflation. So Fed's made a lot of progress. It's still at three and a half, needs to get down to two. That's a lot more sledding. And if you read uh, scintillating documents like the minutes of a federal open market committee meeting, you'll see that the staff's forecast, which they present to, to the folks making these decisions, is that we'll get back to the 2% target in 2026. So while you and I think about inflation as a problem we've got to solve and solve now, like January would be great, let's get it done by next summer at the latest, the Fed is on a multi-year trajectory. When you hear them talk about we're going to retain the option to maybe raise rates more. We're not in a hurry to cut rates. You're hearing that viewpoint that that inflation is here. It's hard to get out of the economy, and this is going to be a a, a long and and modest decline, not some sort of sharp revert, revision to go down to two, and 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 we're done. Steve and Troy and I like to not only read the minutes of the Fed uh, uh, meetings, but we listen to Supreme Court oral arguments as well. So I mean, this is this is a perfect day for us. I, I wanted to ask it just to follow up on 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 this because you hear a lot of talk about how inflation is coming down. Inflation is coming down. I mean, inflation is is still going up. It's just not going up by as high a pace. <laughs> the the in, the rate of increase of prices, and so if inflation's anything above zero, prices are rising, and they're just not rising as fast as they used to. And that's 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 the good news. It's not getting as bad as it used to, but the, the prices are still going up. The Fed's goal in all of this is to make sure that people are able to make economic decisions with some reliability about the future. You don't want to have a world where inflation is two or, or it was actually one point four at the beginning of uh, 2021. And then a year later, it's nine point one Like that, that. You can't make any good decisions if you don't know what's going to go on with inflation. So they want to get it back to something steady and predictable, 2%, because that aids decision making. That's the real goal here. My uh, last question on inflation before I stop hogging the microphone, which is the moderator's prerogative, um, is to, um, you know, I, I can't resist this. You know, the president has been saying that it's, you know, the corporations are price gouging. Oh, and, you and I, 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 I know this is uh, waving a red flag here at the bulb. <laughs> I just wanted to give you an opportunity to comment on that argument. I am not a fan. I'll say it uh, nicer than I did when I wrote it. There, I have two complaints with this. Complaint number one is the, the sort of pointing at corporations. You don't have to like corporations. It's fine. But inflation is, by definition, a general rise in the price level. That's the prices of everything. Corporations small businesses, taco stands, drug dealers on the corner, everybody. Like, you know, prices going up across the board at some rate. And so 
you don't single out any particular commodity. It's not like just eggs or any particular uh, business uh, form, corporations. It's controlling all those prices. Second thing you said about this is you should bring your prices back down to what they were. That's not slowing inflation. That's deflation. That's having prices go down. And deflation is, in fact, just as uh, problematic as is inflation, but for the same reason. You don't know what prices are going to be. You make bad decisions about what you do now, what you do later. You want to have some predictability. And so the notion that we want to have deflation as a solution, if anything, is wrong. And I, I'm sure the president wouldn't want to turn around and say to the unions, hey, inflation's come down. You got to put your wages back to where they used to be. But it's the same logic. And he would never do that. I suspect not. Tori, you want to tee up? We, we may have to break off, uh, but you want to tee up a question here? We got about two minutes. And the sure, I, minutes so. I just I wanted to drill down a little bit more on the whole disinflation deflation. I mean, we've got a lot of great economic statistics. We've got a lot of unhappy voters. And I think the reason why is because inflation is still positive, right? It's not that prices aren't dropping. But as you indicate, you know, falling prices, especially across the board, are not necessarily a good thing, right? I mean, the Federal Reserve does not have a target of 0% inflation. They do not have a target of negative 2% inflation. Is there a reason why? The, there are a couple of reasons for the people's unhappiness. And, and um, uh, one is that food, energy, and shelter are 50% of the typical family's budget. And, and food, energy, and shelter inflation has been worse than, than general inflation. It peaked at like 11-something percent, I forget the exact number, and it's still running at 4.5%. So when you, you know, fill up your car, go to the grocery, and then go home, you're reminded that inflation is still a real thing in the U.S. economy, and, and the bulk of that is shelter. And so when you hear the administration talking about, we're, we're going to clean up the supply chains and we, you know there won't be inflation... There's no supply chain in shelter. The apartment is here. It's, it's not in China. And it's not going to come on a container. The, shelter, the, the apartment's here. The house is here. And the annual inflation in that market is still running at something like 6% year over year. That's, that's the inflation problem. And that's a big part of people's budgets. You, you want to just you know slow the economy so that the demand for everything, shelter-inclusive, goes down somewhat. And it has been. And if they continue, they'll be, they'll be successful. There are two things that the polling always shows people want the prices to go back. They want the price of gasoline to go back to what it was. They remember when gas was two, two fifty three. They want it to go back, and food. They've been to the grocery. They know that this cart of food should not cost eighty bucks. This should cost sixty bucks, and they want it to go back. That could happen. That, but that would be particular commodities going down, not everything. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are talking with former CBO director, Congressional Budget Office, that is, Director Douglas Holtz-Eakin, about the latest economic numbers. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are talking with Doug Holtz-Eakin, president of the American Action Forum, about the latest economic numbers. And let me bring in our chief economist, Steve Robinson, to uh, ask a question about the inflation reports. And so we were talking before the break about uh shelter prices and what a big component, you know, the cost of housing was. But, you know, one of the things that's confusing there is 
back in the early 80s, we changed the definition of, of housing. You know, there's what used to be that you'd measure the price of a house and that went into the price index. Now we're doing what's called rental, homeowner's rental equivalent. So we sort of say, what is the cost of renting your own home? And it's sort of this quasi made up number that goes into the CPI index. But if wow. you actually look at home prices, they actually peaked back in, uh, I guess it was June of last year. And then they started falling. And now in the last few months, they've been going up again. Now, so that you've got rising home prices. Now, those home prices will eventually show up in the price of the shelter index. And I guess the question is, if interest rates stay low, I mean, you look at the interest rate on the 10-year bond, it was at 5%. It's now back down. If, in fact, we can't raise interest rates to cool off the housing market and get housing prices to slow down, are those rising home prices going to show up in the shelter component of the index? And in fact, we're going to continue to see that 3% inflation number is kind of gets going to get stuck. I mean, what's what's your thoughts there? Uh, really, really a good question. There are about three different pieces uh, that, that I'd like to talk about. Um, let's let's do the completely nerdy one first, and then people can wake up and hear the, the other. You know, in something like the consumer price index, you're trying to measure the the price of a fixed basket of goods. And, and if that if that sort of fixed basket of goods includes an apartment, it's pretty easy. What's the price of the apartment? It's the rent that month. I pay the rent to the landlord. I know what it costs. So unfortunately, not everyone lives in an apartment like that. And some live in a home. And to make them comparable measures, as you as you mentioned, what they decided to do is ask, ask the question, what would the owner charge if he or she was renting that house to themselves for the month? And so that's a number that would be the right, quote, price for that house in the CPI. It is not a quasi-made-up number. It's an entirely made-up number. And, and they try to do it based on a logic, which is, okay, you're in a rental market. You're competing with, with you know, own a home versus, versus rent. We'll get it to the right level. But the, the reality is they are, in fact, on a regular basis, simply imputing that number because they don't see a market transaction. For that reason, we'll go back to the, the top of the show. I talked about, don't remember all these terms. The Fed's genuinely preferred measure of inflation is not the core PCE price index. It's the market-based core PC price index. They throw out all uh, prices that are imputed and they look only at market transactions. What did a firm charge and a seller uh, pay in order to get a good or service? And they view that as the best indicator of the underlying trend in this market economy. So we're trying to, to measure this. We don't do it very well. And the Fed often just pitches it out to, to get a better gauge on things. One of the reasons the shelter is, is so confusing is just think about apartments. You sign your lease for a year. And so if I ask you the question every month, what's the, what's the price of your apartment? You say, oh, here's my rent. That's what I'm paying. But it moves very slowly because it's locked in for a year. Now, as the economy cools, the people buying, uh, renting apartments after you aren't seeing inflation go up as much. So they're signing different leases that have lower in increases in rent than yours did. But it takes a whole year to cycle through that and get lower inflation pressures in the housing market to show up. And so there is this issue of how long will it take for the Fed's efforts to cool things to show up in the shelter inflation numbers, because there is this lag that's produced just by contracts alone, which leads to the, the third piece of yours, which is what has the Fed in fact done to the housing market and how will it show up? The, the Fed has hammered the housing market. It raised rates and that raises mortgage rates. It then also stopped plowing $30 billion a month into mortgage-backed securities and started pulling $35 billion a month out, thereby taking a swing of $65 billion in, in capital available for mortgages in the economy. That raised mortgage rates even more than other interest rates went up. And we saw 
enormous declines in real building activity, building permits, uh, building housing starts, um, residential construction, all of those measures and, and the origination of new mortgages, all of those measures are at depression levels. And that has been a very successful part of the Fed's inflation battle. If you don't build a house or build an apartment, you don't put an oven in it, you don't put a, a water heater in it, you don't carpet it, you don't have a demand for a whole bunch of other goods in the economy, and you slow down a big chunk of the economy. And indeed, the Fed has really conquered goods price inflation. It's essentially zero now. And so that that approach to controlling the, the demand in the economy has been very successful. The one thing it hasn't done is control housing sales prices because there are a whole bunch of people out there who may not like their house, but they love their their 3% mortgage. They can't get that anymore. So they're not they're not changing houses. They're sticking in that house. They're not putting it up for sale. There are relatively few properties available for sale. And so the 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 sort of market prices for sales of, of homes has have been really high. And you're right, those are showing up. Um, eventually we'll get to a point where the rates moderate enough that people will put more homes on the market, we'll get more real more building activity, and that house price inflation won't be, be as dramatic. But for the moment, we're in this paradoxical situation where we have very few openings in the, in the apartment market, but very little inventory in, that, in the housing market. The, the Fed's strategy is to produce less construction of all of that stuff. And so we have these high sales prices. And speaking of the Fed, another report that we got last week was the so-called Beige Book, uh, the, the November version of it. And that describes changes in economic activity in the 12 regional uh, districts of the, the federal system. And and I want to quote here, they, they said, on balance, economic activity slowed since the previous report, with four districts reporting modest growth, two indicating conditions that were flat to slightly down, and six noting slight declines in activity. Now that contrast quite that sort of downbeat assessment seems to contrast rather remarkably uh, with the latest uh, GDP number, the the third quarter uh, revision of uh, third quarter GDP growth, uh, which came in at five point two percent, which is very very robust and was revised upward four point nine percent. Seemed the first reading seemed really really big. And so 5.2 seems really remarkable. So what's going on here, Doug? I mean, we've got uh, two reports. Are they, are they contradictory or are they just showing us different things? The, the Beige Book is a really valuable resource because unlike all of the, the data we get, the GDP report is a, is a quarterly report. And the most recent report is for the third quarter. So it says that covers July, August and September. Um, we, we get very excited every month for the employment report. We get one on Friday and we get the employment report for November, but Friday is in December. And so all of those statistics that we rely on so much are really economic history. They, they are the, the, the things that have already happened. So that 5.2 is in the rearview mirror. The Beige Book is about what is happening now. And they do this survey just prior to any meeting of the Federal Open Market Committee. So they have contemporaneous information on economic activity. Now, it's not as statistically refined and it's more anecdotal, but they are learning about what's going on in real time. And, and I think that that's entirely consistent with what we saw in the third quarter report. Uh, in the third quarter report, we got a big number of 5.2, but 1.3 percentage points of it were, were inventory accumulation, typically transitory, toss that out. Uh, Nine-tenths of a percent of it was government spending. We're not going to be able to spend hand over fist forever. So that's not a, a sort of durable source of demand. 
That leaves the private sector providing a relatively modest piece of that, uh, 2.9. Almost all of that was in the household sector, 2.8% real consumption growth. And the question is, can the households continue to do that? Real disposable income didn't grow from May to to October. Um, The savings rate has fallen two percentage points since May. This credit card's uh, debt is up dramatically. So there's this sense of a household sector spending, but it's kind of on fumes and, and not able to continue. I have been worried about that. Business community is flat in the water. Housing's, uh, household sector is carrying everything. The November Beige Book says we hit stall speed. It, it, it's, it reflects what the business community has been saying. We're, we're flatlined and may reflect a relatively modest uh, growth in consumer spending. So I, I, I take it seriously. It's not definitive. It's, it's on my worry list as to what's going on out there right now. It's not that uh, it's portending a uh, recession, but that 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 recession that has always been, you know, like uh, just beyond the horizon. Um. Well, it, it, you know, we're all prey to relying too much on recent events. Uh, and, and I think this is going on right now in the U.S. Uh, the pandemic recession was caused by a decline in household spending because people couldn't spend. They couldn't go out the door and go to their bar, the restaurant, their concert. And so they didn't spend money and we got the recession. That's the only post-war recession that's been led by the household sector. Every other post-war recession begins with a downturn in business spending, business fixed investments, structures, equipment, software. That 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 becomes the driving force in that business cycle. It goes down, people get laid off, they then stop spending, and the household sector follows the business sector. So I've been watching the business sector, and I was concerned about that, that third quarter GDP report because it was essentially flattened there. We haven't seen any evidence that it's picked up since. And so the Beige Book cements my, you know, I, I've got a, a watch on um, uh, the, the business sector spending. That's That to me is the key right now. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are talking with former CBO director Douglas Holtz-Eakin about the latest economic numbers. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are talking with Douglas Holtz-Eakin, president of the American Action Forum, about the latest developments in the economy. We were just talking at the end of the last segment about the possibility of uh, maybe a recession uh, sometime in the, uh, in the future. Uh, Steve, uh, you had a follow-up question. Uh, yeah, I mean, historically, there's what's called the uh, inverted yield curve, meaning short-term interest rates are higher than long-term interest rates. And historically, that's been a pretty reliable predictor of recessions. Whenever you get an inverted yield curve, you would have a recession you know, fairly, fairly soon. We've actually had an inverted yield curve now for over a year. And some people were kept saying they would point to that and say, well, look, that means we're having a recession. But so far, we haven't. So is is that indicator no longer working or is something else going on here? Well, here's the good news. Um, I've never paid any attention to it. Uh, economists come in different flavors, like like everything. And I, I've never been convinced that near-term movements in financial markets are particularly valuable for understanding the course of the Main Street economy. I spend a lot of time looking at indicators of the, the Main Street economy, employment, new claims for unemployment insurance, 
productivity, you know, all of those things, but financial market indicators, especially the stock market um, and, and, and to a lesser extent, uh, the bond market are, are just not something I think are particularly informative. So I, you know, I've, I've noticed it on occasion. I don't put so much weight on their ability to track the economy over periods of, you know, 12 to 18 months to, to, to spend a lot of time worrying about it. So it's true. It hasn't produced uh, a recession. We'll find out. There are other indicators. So there's this Claudia Song rule, which is just, you look at the unemployment rate and you take the three-month moving average. And whenever that rises half a percentage point above the previous low in the past year, then we've always had a recession. We're on the cusp of of, uh, of satisfying that rule. So with the employment report on Friday, we might get an indicator from the SOM rule that we should be going into recession It'll be interesting to see if we do and if we, and if it turns out there is a recession or another indicator gone wrong. Post-pandemic, reading the economy has been really hard. And, um, I, you know, I, I, I think everyone has to take all of these indicators with a grain of salt and, uh, and just sort of look for an accumulation of evidence that we are, in fact, have a, a broad and, and sustained downturn as opposed to a particular indicator. And, and I think there's a I mean, I'm in the camp that is actually quite concerned about this. The Federal Reserve said with great clarity that the only mistake the, the vaunted Volcker Fed made back in the late 70s, early 80s, when they last had to fight 40-year highs in inflation, the only mistake they made was easing prematurely, and they would not make that mistake. That's the same thing as saying we're prepared to do too much and cause a recession. So I've been on on the watch for indicators of recession for exactly that reason, because they are set up to produce one, and they are going to get to 2%. And I think early next year, we are quite likely to have very slow growth at best, say 1% or under, and inflation is not yet at the 2% target. And you're going to hear a real vigorous debate about whether it makes sense to focus only on inflation. That's what the Fed's been doing. They've been focused dead set on inflation, nothing else. You're going to start to hear about a debate. Hey, you know, there's there's there are people out there who are losing their jobs. There are people out there who where the employment part might be a bigger part of the, the story, and we need to pay attention to that. And that's going to be a tough period for the Fed. It's been weirdly easy easy sailing for a Fed that's done some dramatic things. Well, the markets seem to think that they're going to start cutting rates at some point, so they may be buying into that. Oh, again, pardon me for for just uh, you're waving a red flag. I mean, there's just this collection of of uh, New York based uh, market analysts and and participants who are addicted to cheap money or used to zero rates and, and just want the Fed to go back there. And I think they should all just be quiet for say five years. <laughs> There, Doug, that that brings the question to mind. Uh, it should be should we at all be concerned about stagflation heading into next year? I mean, if we're talking about an economy that's slowing, if we're at stall speed, but the Fed has not achieved its interest rate or its inflation target with interest rates, and they still continue to raise rates, are we looking at a potential stagflation environment next year? If you, I'm going I'm going to play word games with you, but I'll admit it. Um, if you define stagflation as the experience of, say, the 70s, sustained mm-hmm. high inflation, even in double digits, and sustained high unemployment. No, we're not going to have sustained either of those because what the Fed will do is it will continue marching toward 2%. And so we'll still have some inflation, but it'll be coming down toward 2 And then my guess is we will have more unemployment. And there will be this moment where we still have inflation and we'll have rising unemployment and people are going to call that stagflation, but it's going to be more transitory than the 70s because they're going to get back to 2 and then we'll start working on the unemployment problem. 
if I'm Joe Biden, I'm just like, holy crap, <laughs> all the all the headwinds that he has his campaign has to face next year, just on the economic side of things. It's insane. My experience is that people make up their minds sort of roughly nine months to a year out. And so it is the news now that matters over the next couple of months. People will set their views of how the economy is doing and and grade the incumbents on uh, based on that. And so this is a critical period for the Biden administration. And, you know, they know it because they're working like mad to 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 frame his performance uh, in, in a really positive way. Or you've got a theory about a dual economy. You want to bring that up? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I look at these statistics and a lot of them, you know, they're sort of top line. You know, what's the economy doing overall? And we all know that there's a lot of you know, like a duck paddling on the water, things look calm on the surface, but underneath their feet are paddling like crazy. Um, I, I feel like there are a lot of undercurrents underneath the the top line number that might be contributing to sort of the the voter malaise that that we see. And, and, and you know, maybe I'm wrong, but I, I feel like two economies are emerging here in the United States. I think the 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 really wealthy are, are doing really well and they're spending like gangbusters. And I think that's showing up in in a lot of the 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 GDP data. But I also feel like there is a large chunk of the economy that's really suffering. And these are the people that benefited greatly from all of the, the COVID-related spending, whether it was the direct uh, economic payments, it was the tax subsidies, it was the subsidies for childcare, healthcare, uh, the, the eviction moratorium, et cetera. All of that stuff has expired. And, you know, they've, they've gone through their savings if they had any to start with. And that's where we're sort of seeing this, you know, we can talk about, yeah, the unemployment rate is, is three and a half percent. We can talk about how GDP is, you know, 5.2%. We can talk about how, you know, inflation is three and a half percent and not 7%. But you've got a lot of people that are facing this diminution in income and economic security. And that's, that's not being captured in this top line economic data. And I wasn't sure if that is like a bona fide, you know, theory of the case or whether I'm just making stuff up. So you have to be right at some level. Uh, we know that um, certainly single numbers don't summarize everyone's experience. That's that's uh, the, the first and obvious point. Second is that for a large chunk of 2023 real, that is inflation adjusted disposable income has been rising. And there are a lot of families out there who do not have a pile of money sitting in the bank or great wealth out of which they can finance their spending. So if if the real income isn't rising, they're stretching things to, to make it all hang together. They, they can't spend anymore. They can spend only what's coming in. And and that has to be true. And, th- and that has to be the stresses that we see in the polling. If circumstances get worse for that group, they will unquestionably be among those who are going to cut back even more. And, and that's why we worry about uh, broad uh, economic downturns. So so that's I, th- I think there's something like that out there because there has to be the numbers can't add up uh, any other way. The I think the the expirations of these emergency uh, programs is a little the the feeling that that is a little more mixed at least with me. I mean, um, we did a lot of those things. We gave people a lot of money, but beginning in 2021, the ones in 2020 worked beautifully. Beginning in 2021, they didn't do anything for economic growth and employment growth and the things that we'd like them to do, they generated a lot of inflation that made a lot of people's lives worse, not better. And so we were sort of saying, oh, well, we're going to help you over here. But we're in fact, we had this very, very, very potent mix of expansionary monetary policy. The Fed was plowing money in the economy. So was the the government. We just generated a lot of inflation, not a lot of real progress. So 
getting that back onto a better balance, I think, has been a big part of what's gone on this year. And 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 we're and we're getting there. I mean, we we're we're sort of got the labor market roughly back in balance, in my view. We've got the goods market sort of roughly back to where it is. We have some services problems, and and that and that's that's the last sort of piece of this puzzle is getting the services sector of the economy to grow at a more reasonable rate. And that's where, where the people you're worried about are. They're all, I mean, most people are employed in the service sector. And so they're largely relatively low wage service sector workers. Those are the ones we, that you've you got to be keeping your eye on. Just real quickly, because we only got about a minute left in this segment. Uh, what about the resumption of student loan payments? That, that's been, there's been a lot of talk about that. Do you think it has I, much of an economic in, impact? Again, this is going to be a case where for some people, this is a big deal, but in the aggregate, it's not. I, I kept trying to recalculate the numbers to turn them into a big deal. It's not. I think there are other ways to, to explain the, any slowdown in, in household spending. You know, th- Their incomes aren't rising. That, that, to me, is a bigger thing than the, the, the loan payment obligations. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are talking with Douglas Holtz-Eakin, former director of the Congressional Budget Office, and we are discussing the latest economic reports and what they all mean. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are talking with Douglas Holtz-Eakin, president of the American Action Forum, about latest uh, latest developments in the economy. And uh, one uh, issue that we haven't talked about that I want to bring up now is Doug's new issue brief uh, on employment-based immigration and uh, recommendations for some changes that Congress could make, which uh, would have a positive economic effect through the immigration system. So, um, Doug, let me just turn this over to you. And I, I, well, I always listen to what you say on this subject since you wrote a very comprehensive report for the Concord Coalition in a series we did back in 2019 on economic policies for economic growth and fiscal responsibility. So, uh, Doug, just kind of in a nutshell, what, uh, what are your recommendations? Uh, well, that we... Be uh, much more aggressive in the use of employment-based um, immigration uh, tools, visas, and uh, the like. And and here's why: as you know, you know I've had this conversation before. The native-born U.S. population doesn't have a lot of babies, so we don't even have replacement-level fertility. In the absence of immigration, the U.S. shrinks. The population gets older and smaller. The economy becomes less vital. The flip side of that is that everything about America's future resides on the decisions it makes about its immigration policies. The immigration is an enormously important economic policy. And if you listen to the conversation about immigration right now, the first thing you hear is a, a, a huge uh, fight about what to do with the southern border. Um, that's a genuinely serious policy issue. It's not my area of expertise. That, that sucks a lot of the oxygen out of the room. Then some people sometimes say, well, we need to, to worry about uh, the other criteria we use for legal immigration. We had like family unification and all this asylum status and things like that. And left out of that conversation is the employment-based visa programs, uh, which are things like the temporary uh, visas to come in for for harvesting things, the skill-based ones like H-1Bs for tech workers and the like. Um, they're an important part of the U.S. immigration system, but but they're, we, we grant a small number of permanent visas on, on the basis of economic criteria. And I think 
we should beef up that idea more substantially. That was the heart of the paper I wrote for you. What I did in this uh, latest is to just say, okay, let's look at what we've got, not imagine a huge reform where we we, we completely re- rework the immigration system. That, th- that seems like a bridge too far in the current environment. What could we do? We could raise the caps. We have caps on H-1Bs, for example, skilled uh, immigrants. You could raise those caps and allow more people in. Um, there are some people who fear that. And, and, and so you'll get some political pushback, but you could just get, have more skilled immigrants coming into the United States. That, that would help in the near term. Uh, you could also allow the spouses of people on such a visa to work. Like right now, that visa gives the, the immigrant permission to work, but not their spouse. We could de facto get more, um, uh, labor supply and, and fill more jobs if we allowed the, those spouses to work. So we could do things like that which to me would, would make a lot of sense and help with the near-term um, stresses. We could also deal with the backlogs and, uh, and, and, and work the permitting faster. Uh, the, the backlogs are, are a big deal. They're years long. It, it's stunning how many people are waiting to be, to be processed. My colleague Gordon Gray actually did an analysis of you know, if we spent the money to clear the backlogs and sort of you know, staffed up appropriately and took care of the time, what would it cost? And the answer is it's going to cost in the single digits of billions of dollars, something that's like a three to a five, maybe a six, but it's it's in that range. And what do we get for it? Well, we get people who are, who are here and unable to contribute to the economy to be here and contributing to the economy. We get like a hundred billion more dollars in, in income in the economy. Well, anything you can get for a hundred uh, that produces a hundred billion for a small down payment like that, we ought to be doing, but we're not doing it. Um, so I, let's process it people more quickly. A, a very smart man uh, once told me when I was at the White House, if you can find a problem you can solve by just throwing money at it, you are lucky. Just throw money at it and solve it. Most problems are harder than that. <laughs> one you can solve by just throwing money at it. Mm-hmm. I, I'm a former budget director. I don't like just spending a lot of money, but sometimes that is the answer. And um, it appears to be that in this case. There's also some administrative things we could do. There's something called the Schedule A over at the Department of Labor. Schedule A is a list of uh, of uh, occupations and industries where we just don't have enough uh, domestic workers and they're they're in, in short supply. And so, it turns out the Department of Labor hasn't revised the Schedule A in decades. And if you look around at the U.S. economy right now, there are places we need some we need some people. So we could revise the Schedule A. If they do that and they're now on the Schedule A, then you can expedite all the the, the paperwork and approval and get them into the into the U.S. and and into the labor force more quickly. So in all of these things, we are our own worst enemy. These are self inflicted wounds that we could fix within the context of the current system. And I think that's that's something. Would be good to to show some some progress because we have these sort of near term labor issues, which all of these would address. But we have longer term serious immigration and population demography issues that 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 need to be addressed. And you know, a more robust reform would be helpful for that. And we're losing in the international competition for for immigrants, right? I mean, the the, the poster child for this is you get an H one B visa in the United States, and and you get to come here and work temporarily. And then at the end of your of your visa, uh, you can wait and maybe be granted a permanent a green card uh, to be here permanently. But you have to go back to your country and there's no guarantee for sure. And it takes time. So Canada takes a look at the situation and says, OK, they've decided these are valuable workers, but they're not really prepared to have them there permanently. We'll take them. 
And they just announced, if you've got an H-1B from, from the United States, come on up and be a Canadian citizen. Well, the door is open. And they filled that program like that. So other countries recognize that this is a, a global labor market now, and we have some serious issues in competing effectively, and we need to do better. So we're, we're losing on the sort of demography front. We're losing on the international competition front. And I think we need to do better. And, I, and honestly, I have no illusions they're going to do something in 2023. Let's face it. You know, let us pray they can get the, the government funded and move on. But you can't give up on ideas that are important. And I'm hoping this gets into the mix. And we talk about immigration that is more than just the southern border and more than just things like amnesty, asylum, refugee status. Well, I think people don't realize how serious the population situation is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, just the slowdown in labor force growth is staggering and, and it will get you know much worse. And, you know, the factors that are producing that probably aren't going to go away. We're, we're probably not going to start having big families again and uh, in growing the indigenous population. And we're on a track where we're going to have more deaths in this country than births within about 20 years. Uh, so we're going to rely on immigration. We already are. It's all, it's always hard. We're Americans. And so um, it's hard for us to look at ourselves in the mirror and see the uh, clear picture, be honest with ourselves about what's going on. So I'll give you another dramatic example which, that shows the stakes. China has terrible demographic problems because they had a one child policy for a long time. And so they have a terribly low fertility rate. It hasn't recovered. If you just leave the, the, the Chinese uh, population on its current birth and death rates and run it forward, over the next three decades, it's going to shrink by a half. Do you think China's going to survive shrinking by a half? I mean, the potential for, for uh, turmoil there is enormous. Do you see China as open to immigration as a way to solve that problem? So the U.S., I think, needs to look around and say, okay, we've seen Japan. Japan was the, 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 the rising star in the, in the 20th century, and it ran into its demography. It did not allow any immigration. It didn't adjust. It is now an, an economic afterthought. The U.S. can avoid that fate. Right? We have to get smart about the thing that is going to be our future, and that's our, our immigration decisions. And, and the people we claim we, we, we care so much about, competition with China in particular, they're not making those decisions. So we should. No, I, I say the one point that I think a lot of people don't understand is that our economy can grow only as fast as the people can produce the goods and services. And so if we don't have enough people to produce goods and services, we're not going to grow. I mean, I, I think, you know, too often people confuse this with the whole, you know, the planet's overpopulated, you know, we're, we're producing too much crap, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, economic growth is, is, is important just in terms of like global stability, you know? Uh, so I, I think that, you know, p- people need to be reminded again and again and again, that economies only grow as fast as their population can produce the goods and services that, you know, create wealth. So amen to you for saying that. And and I'll just sort of remind everybody of my, my favorite um, uh, current economic uh, problem. In the 20th century, we grew fast enough that GDP per capita uh, average 2.4% growth per year. So that's a per person, income per person, 2.4%. That means that it, it doubles roughly every 29 years. So that's a crude measure of the standard of living and it doubles every 29 years. In the 21st century, from 2001 to now, it's been averaging 1.4%. If we had kept up with 2.4, there would be $19,000 per person more in the United States right now. now I don't know about you, I'd take the 19000 I think that looks good. Sign me up. And, and it, it, it's part of our fiscal problem as well. If we had kept that rate of growth, 
Um, GDP would be higher and tax revenue would be $1.2 trillion a year higher. We have $20 trillion in deficits over the next 10 years. $12 trillion would be useful at the moment. I'm a fan of that. So we have a growth problem, Tori. We have a very big growth problem. And I think it's time to to relaunch the, the pro-growth policies uh, that are fiscally responsible book and um, and wake, wake our policymakers up. That is our problem. Fiscal problems, we have a big growth problem. We need to solve them. Immigration fits in that. It, it is a way to do that. You're the third guest in a row that suggested a fiscal wake-up tour <laughs> with economic growth policies. For Doug sake, you know, I'm just trying to get you out on the road, Bob. Just- <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to do that. Uh, always happy to do that. Uh, just That's all the time we have for this week. Uh, so I want to thank uh, Doug Holtzikin for joining us uh, and letting us know about the latest economic news and uh, talking about the uh, uh, need for immigration reform. Thanks to Tori and Steve for their contributions and insights. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Be sure to tune in again next week when we'll be back with another edition of Facing the Future. <laughs>